We're going to start our time of worship in the Word by reading Scripture. We're in Acts chapter 17. Look please, starting at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind, life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us For in Him we live and move and have our being, even as even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. This text brings so much to our attention. First of all, he says that he doesn't need anything. He is not a needy God, hence the title of our time together this morning, worshiping a content God. He also says he doesn't need a temple formed by man's hands. Now you'll remember that David proposed to make a temple for God, that he would be worshipped there and dwell there. And God gave approval to that. Um, But in the process, God wanted to let David, the one who was soliciting and proposing this temple, he says, I don't need a temple. I didn't ask for a temple. I've been traveling about with you in a tent. Let me do this. I'm going to give you something. Rather than you making me a house, I'm going to make you a house. And from that house, that dynasty that would come from you, we know the Savior of the world came. And then, of course, God allowed Solomon to then construct that temple. People worshipped there. In Isaiah 66, at the beginning of the, the chapter, God makes this statement that the heaven, heavens are His throne and the earth His footstool. He's pretty big. Can you construct a temple to contain Him? And the answer to that is, certainly not. In Psalm 50, God says this, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is Mine, and its fullness is Mine. It is so important for us to understand and to reiterate in our minds that God doesn't need anything. Our God has no needs. He does not lack for companionship. 
He is eternally in perfect union Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God is infinitely and eternally glorious. He does not need us to add to His glory. In fact, we cannot add to His glory. So when we come together and we say we want to, we want to glorify God, we want to give glory to God, really what we're, we should be rightly saying is we want to point to the glory of God. We want to magnify, make clear the glory of God. We want to, by God's grace, reflect the glory of God. We certainly don't add to it and we certainly can't detract from it. God is infinitely and eternally glorious. Yet while our God is completely glorious and completely content and totally satisfied in perfect relationship, the passage we're going to study this morning says that God, the Father, seeks worshipers. He is seeking worshipers. So that makes us ask the question, that have already tried to undermine the question to start, does God feel incomplete? Is He lacking something to where He wants to get some people to make Him feel better about Himself by getting them to worship Him? As if then He'll finally feel whole and finally feel complete. The answer to that is a big, giant no. Now you've heard the expression, misery loves company. Well, this is the opposite of that. God's seeking worshipers is the opposite of misery loves company. It is more like God delights to share His good gift of contentment with us. God delights in sharing His good gift of fullness, wholeness, contentment with us. Back in John now, take a look over back at John chapter 4 as we'll be diving into that text again. The woman at the well in Samaria had experienced the dissatisfying, gut-wrenching, life-sucking disappointments of seeking love in all the wrong places. She knew that experience oh too well. And it left her empty. It left her disappointed. It left her discontent. She is alone in this setting. Alone. At least that's the way it appears. She seemingly rejected. And she's seemingly empty. And Jesus meets her in this condition of desperation and loneliness and dissatisfaction. Jesus meets her in this condition and He offers her mercy and grace that will never run 
dry. Mercy and grace that would never leave her empty. Mercy and grace that would never leave her searching again. He offers her life from Himself. And in connection with that offer of life from Himself that wells up within her, springing forth the eternal life, from that, this glorious conversation resulting in real worship takes place. Let's take a look, please, starting back at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to Him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. Uh, He was called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, why do you, uh, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water pot and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is the setting that we have the privilege of looking through this morning. We looked at it some last week. She was wondering... If Jesus is this promised Messiah, she wanted to know, maybe you can end this debate that's been going on about where to worship. You're the Messiah. You're telling me these things that, about myself. I could not, you couldn't know any other way. You must be the prophet. And if you're the prophet, it means you're the Christ, the Messiah. And if you're Him and you can tell us all things, tell me about this worship thing. You see how it's transitioned from the invasiveness to what she's experienced and the, 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 the place of being stunned to, I, I need something from you. I need to understand this from you. 
If he's the Messiah, he will have the definitive word on this controversy. But woven into her conversation is an assumption. And her assumption is correct. So we want to start with the assumption, and then we'll try to work our way through what Jesus' response is. The assumption is that God is worthy of worship. This is her assumption, and she's correct. Because when she asks the question, she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that it's in Jerusalem that there's a place that you ought to worship. Right? So, worship is understood. This is a, a thing to do. This is a, a, a need of our lives. And so, she makes this assumption, and she's correct. God is worthy of worship. Our fathers worship, but you say that in Jerusalem. Why would we assume that God is worthy of worship? What is at the core of this assumption? Let me list a number of things for our consideration to think about why it is that we assume, rightly, that God is worthy of worship. First of all, He created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as part of that Genesis 1 accounting, He said, let there be light. And there was light. He formed out of the ground animals. And He formed out of the ground people. And He breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living Spirit, you can't do that. And I can't do that. And there is no human being on the earth that can do that. God created all things. And not only that, the Bible tells us that Jesus, by the Word of His power, sustains all these things. With the Word of His power, He keeps all of this together. All of the countless sure there's some kind of a mathematical expression my wife could tell me about. Countless atoms on the earth and then throughout the vast universe. And then, beyond the creation and the sustaining of life and people, God offers to redeem and save all things. People and His created order. Amazing. You know what's amazing? This is, this is, again, we come to, to, to things that we only just grapple with. We see it in Scripture and we're like, I believe you, but I don't understand it. The Bible tells us that the whole earth is full of His glory. You know what that means? You know the expression, that's a God-forsaken place? That ain't true. However many days you've lived on this earth, and whatever you've experienced, and wherever you've been, you have not for one second experienced what life is like without the full glory of God. No, that's not the right statement. Without an expression of God's glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. Everywhere His glory is. The fullness of that is still to come. We will see in its fullness. But you have not experienced life without the glory of God. No human being understands what it's like in this life to be separated outside without the presence of God's glory in some shape or form. Some, and many, will spend an eternity separated from that glory. 
for the first time they'll experience what life is like outside of God's presence and God's glory in some way. And it blows our minds like it's beyond our scope of understanding. But with this thought that everywhere we go and every place we are, every situation we experience, we experience in one way or another in this life some form of God's glory, this lets us know that God is worthy of worship if I can't escape God's glorious presence. Yet, there is a perpetual worship problem. We battle, along with everyone else, the challenge of substitute gods. We battle, along with the society around us, what Romans 1 says is the possibility that we will exchange the truth about God for a lie and we will worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, the One who was blessed forever. Amen. We battle this every single day where our affections are on something, trying to extract, trying to gain, trying to satisfy ourselves with this created thing over against the Creator of that thing. That's an exchange. That's an idol of my heart. One commentator said that our hearts are idol factories. And he is absolutely true. We battle this every day. There are innumerable illustrations of faulty worship portrayed throughout Scripture. Whether it's the worship of self-focus like Adam and Eve in the garden, I will be like God. I, I'm gonna, I know God said don't do this, but, but I see that the tree is good for food. It's good. It makes it, it's desirous to me to make me wise so I can be like God and choose for myself. Whether it's that kind of worship or it's a self-righteous worship like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me read that for you. Just listen. Listen. You've heard it before, most likely. Listen to what Jesus depicts here. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed Thus, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Aren't I swell? Oh, that was my, that was my uh, added bonus. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this one, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Self-righteous worship. Oh God, aren't you, aren't you pleased that I have come to bless you with my presence today? I really try hard. I'm not like that other guy. You don't see him once in a, you know, once a month over there. I'm here every day. The doors are open. Every service project, there I am. Where are the rest of these lazy people? You see how it can sneak in. Right? 
We've all struggled thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And perhaps at other times, we have all struggled thinking more lowly about ourselves than we ought to think. Other faulty worship illustrations can be observed in the prophets, like the prophet of uh, the prophets of Amos's day, who, when the people of Amos's day were bringing their worship to God, God said, "I hate your worship." But they were bringing the prescribed elements that God called for. And God said, I hate your worship. And the reason that God speaks so definitively about not appreciating or receiving their worship is that while they were worshiping Him, they were worshiping all other kinds of gods. Like basically covering their bases. Oh, if I you know, offer to this God, you know, this will be taken care of in my life. And I offer to this God, this will be taken care of in my life. And I offer to this God, this will be taken care of. And now, of course, the God of you know, our fathers, we've got to make sure we take care of Him. So He'll take care of us. We've got all of our bases covered. And we think, yeah, I would never do that. But in how many ways do you try to satisfy yourself and fulfill your needs? covering all your bases of your own self-effort. To just, hey, I want my house to be a certain way, and I want my car to be a certain way, I want my food to be a certain way, I want my body to be a certain way, I want my, my career path to be a certain way, I want my, my after-career path to be a certain way. We've got it all curated for ourselves. And by the way, I'll just visit God on Sundays every now and then and say, God, aren't you happy with me? All these different ways. And it's like, it's like what can I do to take care of my needs. Worship. The woman in this account with Jesus has been chewed up and spit out by her desire to be loved and to find fulfillment in that love. You and I struggle likewise to cater to all kinds of desires, to all of our little gods. For all of these idols... You know, I don't know what your problem is, right? Like I, you know you have idols in your own heart and mind. I, I can't, like I just try to give little samplings of things that could be for all of us to struggle with. But you know what puts you to sleep at night or keeps you up at night. You know what it is that's on your heart first thing in the morning when you wake up, you're like, all right, got to deal with these things, those concepts. For all of these idols, Jesus says, these are nothing compared to me. If you drink from those wells, you'll be thirsty again. If, on the other hand, you come to me, I will put inside of you a well of living water springing up to eternal life. You will never Find my supply lacking. You'll never find what Jesus offers to run dry. Everything else runs dry. They might be great for a period of time, but at some point, it comes to an end for one reason or another. But what Jesus offers you is eternal and it never runs dry. What God supplies is related to who He is. 
He is content. He needs nothing. And what he supplies to us results in us needing nothing. He shares with us the blessed condition that he has enjoyed for eternity, which is full contentment. And we, we taste it. We taste it. We can sense it from time to time. That contentment that comes from him. And we know it is a foretaste of the fullness that will come one day when we no longer battle every idol trying to steal our attention away from that one that supplies in fullness. God is worthy of worship. And He'll never leave us lacking. Move a little further in the text to see Jesus' argument back or answer to her query, her question about, hey, should we you know, worship on Mount Gerizim? Or are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem? You know, We say it's over here. You say it's over there. What do we do? And so Jesus' answer is ultimately, God is worshipped at all times and in all places. But, to just kind of get a little background, the Samaritans and the Jews had these differing views on the location. So let's start by looking in the text of Scripture to feel our way through that a little bit. Look at Deuteronomy 12 for just a moment. Deuteronomy 12. Where are we supposed to worship? Why is that a, why is that a question? Well, you know, we're, we have been set free from this you know, singular location for worship. So it's not a thing for us. But for them... In that day, it was, a, it was a major thing. Based upon the revelation of Scripture, they saw a central location for the people of Israel to worship in based on the words of God. Deuteronomy 12.5 is where we'll start. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 5. It says, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. Look down at verse 13. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offering, offerings. And there you shall do all that I command that I am commanding you. You see this? So like there's a, a directive from God. There's a place I'm choosing. That's where you bring your offerings. That's the central place for worship. Go there. So the Samaritans, you'll remember, only believe in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So if they're going to find a place, where is this place that the Lord our God will choose for us to worship? Where is it? It's not going to be found in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. You get the rest of it. It's not going to be found there. It's going to be found in those first five books. And so, they went to Genesis 12. Not a bad place to look. God promised Abraham to bless him with the land, the seed, and the blessing that God was going to make him great, was going to make his name great, he was going to bless all the families of the earth through his seed. So we've got that place. The very next scene in, in uh, Genesis 12 is uh, Abram going away, going away from, from his home toward where God told him, and he set up an altar at Shechem. 
which is right in that area of Samaria. Okay, so they've got a clue to where we should have our centralized worship. Abram, Abraham, set up the first altar there. So that's a good starting place. Then, as furtherance for their understanding of this centralized location, they, they go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter like 11. And there's a, it's also recorded elsewhere. Um, but there's this antiphony, this antiphonal praise going to God, which means you know, one group is singing and the other, and they're, they're responding. On Mount Ebal, they issued forth the curses that were associated with the law. And from Mount Gerizim, they issued forth the blessings that came from the Mosaic Law. And so they're celebrating, and, and the place that their celebration arose from was near Shechem in Samaria, on Mount Gerizim, that's the place we ought to worship. They determined it in their understanding of Scripture, so that's where we're going to go worship God. Well, the Jews, on the other hand, uh, experienced something a little different as uh, God sanctioned the temple that David proposed to build. It was constructed, dedicated, and filled by God's glory in a visible way. You'll remember that from 1 Kings chapter I think 8 is where the glory of God fills the temple. This same temple is, um, that's designed for worship was rebuilt at the Lord's direction. And where was it? In Jerusalem. So we've got conflicting views about this. Okay, what do we do? Well, you know what's interesting? God had already set forth worship long ago. Where did, it, where did worship start? Human worship. Where did it start? In a garden. A perfect garden. With everything provided. And everything just right. And God met with Adam and Eve. And that garden is, is kind of like the forerunner of the way that things will end, where the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth. We would say from in America, from sea to shining sea, but we could say from east to west, all around the globe, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth. Head back to John 4, please, as we think now and listen to Jesus' response. So her question is, where is this central place of worship? What, you know, We've got this conflict. You're the Messiah. You're the one that knows everything. Where should we worship? Today, all around the globe, all around the world, there are assemblies, large and small. There are assemblies of people that know Jesus as their Savior, that know God as their Father who have the Spirit dwelling within them. And all around the globe today, there are people gathered together with the expressed intention of worshiping the God of the universe. The goal of this worship should be to turn our gaze away from ourselves and to a faithful, unchanging Merciful, loving, saving God. We gather together and we give Him thanks for what He gives. 
And we sing praise about who He is. So we look back in this text and we see Jesus' answer in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe Me, the hour is coming when neither on this Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not, it's, there's, there's not, it's not tied that way. There's worship. And we see that, that that's the case even now. Where, where are you today? Are you in Jerusalem? You at Mount Gerizim? No, you're, you're in Warwick, Rhode Island. Worshiping. Are we pointing to the glory of God? Are we holding out Christ? I hope. I hope we're holding Him out. Jesus then lets us know something about the nature of this worship that takes place at all places in all times. That's this. God is worshipped in spirit and truth. God is worshipped in spirit and truth. Look at verses 23 and 24 to start with. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. You know, there's a considerable amount of time that's taken to try to decipher whether the spirit referenced here is a reference to the human spirit or to the Holy Spirit. And whatever one might conclude from the technical linguistics, the language of the passage, theologically, I think we need to just see the general statement here and recognize that we need both the Holy Spirit as the prompter and fruit giver and provider, and we need the human spirit to be made alive and engaged. So like, you spend all kinds of time figuring out, well, should this be a lowercase s or an uppercase s? And the answer might in fact be yes. Yes, in fact, we do need the Holy Spirit. For genuine worship to take place, we need to be made spiritually alive. That's the word, regeneration. And who brings that about? The Holy Spirit does. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We also need the Holy Spirit to provide for us understanding and strength and joy in this process. And the starting point at which the Spirit of God works at making us alive and providing strength and giving us peace and joy is our human spirit. The Spirit within you that makes you God-conscious. Our bodies make us conscious of things around us. We can feel them. Our soul, generally speaking, makes us self-conscious. We're aware of how we're feeling. And our spirit makes us God-conscious. These are generalities. It's a lot more complicated than that. But God the Spirit's working in our human spirits. Our worship must also in accordance be not just in accordance with the Spirit's promptings and, and, and engagement with our spirit, but it also must be in accordance with truth. So when Jesus states that the Samaritans worship what they do not know, back in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. Our worship, uh, excuse me, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's, he's getting at this truth aspect. The Samaritans had cut off a large swath of God's revelation. 
It's not that they didn't know anything. They didn't have the full orb of it. They're missing something. And then he says, in contrast, they, they were so the, the Samaritans were lacking some fullness, but the Jews, the, they, they worship what they know. They had the, the, the revelation. They had the resources. Salvation is com- coming through the Jews. They have more of God's revelation. But as we really gather what Jesus is trying to lay down here, He's not talking simply about the generality of truth. He's going to be a lot more specific. Who is the provider of this salvation Jesus is speaking of in verse 22? Salvation is from the Jews. Who's the provider of that salvation? The one standing in front of her. Who is the truth that He's referring to? It's about Him. I want you to see, just from John's revelation here, just the Gospel of John, and we've been looking through it together, go back to chapter 1 just for a moment. This will be helpful uh, in giving us uh, more comfort in understanding what He means by Spirit and truth. Chapter 1 starts off by saying that that Jesus is the Word, the the incarnate God. He has life and light in Himself. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Will you read the rest with me? Full of grace and full of grace and truth. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's giving us some clarity about what He means about this worshiping in spirit and truth. Look at chapter 5 now. Chapter 5 and verse 33. Could do a lot more in chapter 5 than we're going to do. We're just going to touch on verse 33 and then move. He says, You sent to John, meaning John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Who was John the Baptist pointing to? Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed to the truth. Look at chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 and verse 32. Jesus said, and you will know what? The truth and the truth will set you free. Well, well, does that mean general revelation of truth? All the Scripture passages? That's not a bad idea. Look at verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Who's the truth that Jesus is telling us is going to set them free? Him. There He is. We all know, we're familiar with John 14.6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Me. What is this truth that we need to worship God through? The Spirit enlivens us. The Spirit gives us uh, strength, gives us comfort, gives us joy, gives us peace and patience. All these things come from Him. He he enlivens our hearts to worship, and we worship through the in accordance with the truth. Think about this a little bit further. Worship, the worship of God comes through the Spirit working in human spirits about the truth. Look at chapter 15. John chapter 15. And look at verse 26. It says, But when the Helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about 
me. So when the Spirit is prompting us to worship, where is He heading us toward? The truth as it is in Jesus. This is a, again, there's a wider view to this. I'm just trying to focus our attention here. There's more to the discussion. How the Holy Spirit leads in worship will never be contrary to what God reveals in Scripture. It will always lead us to see Jesus Christ more clearly. Through this prompting and leading of the Spirit in accordance with Christ, we are worshiping our God who is our Father. This text back in John 4 says the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is Spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so our worship, prompted by the Spirit, targeted on the Son, results in worship of the Father. You know, the Spirit of God lets us know or God, God's Word lets us know that the Spirit of God is the one that causes us to say that Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12.3 And the Spirit of God in Romans 8, uh, verses 15 and 16, as well as Galatians 4.6, the Spirit of God is the one that prompts and works through us to recognize God as our Father. He calls through us. He cries through us, Abba. Father. That's not like generic father, like, oh, some old ancient man, you know, the man upstairs or the old man or whatever expression people have coined. We're talking about an intimate, loving, caring, providing, discerning, wise, giving God. He's amazing. So what was the outcome of Jesus telling this woman about this everlasting fountain of worship? Head back there to John 4. We've just about finished here. Bear with me for another couple minutes. What was the outcome of Jesus telling this woman about this everlasting fountain of worship? Verse 28, So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Like, why did she go to the well? To get some water. Did she leave there with her water? No, she left it behind because she got something way better. And she starts telling all these people that had rejected her and cast her aside and thought nothing of her. She said, I want to tell you about this man who told me everything about me. Come and see him. He's got to be the Christ. Come and see him. She went with one purpose. She had no idea all the the depths of her needs. She had one thing on her mind. And Jesus says, I have a, a deeper revelation for you. I want to tell you about your real need. And I want to meet you. I want to meet you with your deepest need. I want to provide you with myself. You'll never be the same again. I have everything for you. That day, salvation came to Samaria. This lady that was in so deep a need. But you know, let's come back to 2023. All these years later, just as the Samaritan woman arrived that day not knowing what she really needed nor what she would encounter. Here we have come today. 
probably not as keen or aware of our needs as maybe we would like to have been. When we came here, we didn't know exactly what we would encounter. We have pretty similar patterns every week. Not knowing exactly how God was going to meet with us this morning and meet our needs. When we gather here together, it's always our desire to hold forth Christ. To lift Him up. and See how great He is. What He's like. What He provides. And to shine the light so we see I don't have without Him what I need. With all the different idols in our hearts that we're battling with, those idols speak to our humanness, to our brokenness, to our real need. But generally, those idols of our hearts are lying to us, covering up our real needs. We come to this place to worship because God's called us to this very thing. But remember, He didn't call us today to worship because He needed something. He wanted to extract something from us because He's lonely or needed to feel more glorious than He is. You know, God is no more nor less glorious during and after our worship. When we come here, we want to be reminded, we want to remind ourselves that the idols of our hearts can never provide for us the peace and joy, rest, and fullness that Jesus came to give you, came to give us. Our good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly, with, with completion, with fullness, with wholeness, with overflowing. How did He do this? He lived for us. He lived for us. He, he accrued a record of righteousness that I, that you, desperately needed. Because your righteousness will not measure up. He accrued a record of righteousness by living for us. And then... He laid down His life because I have a sin debt that I could not pay. And Jesus laid down His life to be declared guilty and to be condemned so I would never be condemned. Jesus was buried and then He was raised for our justification. Jesus was raised so that you might be declared righteous eternally. It's true for everyone who has faith in Christ. He was raised to declare you righteous, fully righteous, to declare you fully accepted, to declare you fully loved, and to declare you fully, eternally His. This is what Jesus came to do. We hold Him forth to you today. He meets the deepest needs of our heart. This is the God we worship. He doesn't need anything. It is we who desperately need Him. And He who endlessly supplies. He provides in accordance with who He is. As a content God, He has the ability to provide contentment like no one 
and nothing else. Let's pray together. Father, you know what we need. You know what you're up to, how you're working. We commit ourselves, commit those listening to you with great confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.